Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to convocation number two in May term. As most of you know, my name is Becky Horse. I'm convocation coordinator. I didn't expect to be up here today, but Glenn Gilbert, our sustainability coordinator, had a family funeral in West Virginia. So he asked me to introduce this convo, and I agreed because environmental sustainability is one of my passions too. Goshen College is on a journey toward ecological stewardship. And the origin of this journey is Christian faith and the belief that God calls us to care for all of creation. Five years ago, in 2007, our president, President Brenneman, was one of the first college presidents in the nation to sign the President's Climate Initiative. And that commits Goshen College to work toward climate neutrality. And in that same year, in 2007, the Reith Village complex at Mary Lee earned a platinum designation by the LEED Corporation, which, which is the highest level of environmental sustainability construction that you, can, that you can reach. Well, we have an ongoing ecological stewardship committee here on campus, administrators, faculty, and students who lead us in collaborative efforts to encourage sustainable practices and reduce use of fossil fuels. Now this morning you're going to hear about five, or about five areas of activity. And I'll warn you ahead of time, this convo will not last the full 40 minutes. We'll be ending early. So stay engaged while you're here and we'll be dismissing you before the usual ending time. First, you'll hear from, let's see. These five areas are what we'll cover today. Native landscaping, biodiesel production, ecopacks projects, reducing campus fossil fuels, and then the sun shower project. And first, you'll hear, we'll hear from junior John Mark. He has a triple major in biology, environmental science, and PJCS, and he's going to report on two projects that he's been involved with, native landscaping and the biodiesel production. And then after John, we'll hear from two students, Hannah Eberly, junior nursing major, and Natasha Weisenbeek, sophomore public relations major, who will tell us about what Ecopacs has been up to. So those are the first two speakers. Now, the first thing that you want to know when you're talking about the native landscaping projects, first thing you're wondering is, what up with all the dandelions? So, the thing about native prairies is that they invest, the prairie plants invest lots of energy into their roots in the first few years. So right now we're in a transitional phase where they're mostly working for the long term, and the, the long term of taking over the, the native, uh, native plants taking over the prairies. So right now we're gonna be seeing lots of dandelions. The soil has been disturbed, and dandelions really like this disturbed soil that we had to disturb in order to plant the prairie plants in the first place. So what I really want to stress is this is a transitional phase that we're dealing with right now, and over the coming years, we're going to be seeing a lot less dandelions. And in addition, there's a very good article on, on, uh, on uh, GC, my GC, by Glenn Gilbert about dandelions and making peace with dandelions. Um, another physical aspect would be uh, if anybody was woke up in the middle of the night or 
didn't wake up in the morning because their alarm clock is, was off due to the power outage, you'll notice that there was lots of rainwater that was coming down. And so per, the prairies have also been uh, very helpful as far as controlling that stormwater um, runoff and keeping that from flooding until the, into the Elkhart River at a too rapid of a pace. Um, in addition, there's some environmental factors. Uh, you'll, talk, you'll hear about the reducing of, of fossil fuel use, and so it, these prairies reduce mowing by a lot. You're only going to be mowing these prairies a couple times a year for the first few years, and then pretty much no fossil fuel inputs will be on these prairies. And in addition, there's lots of ha bird habitat, many different birds that we're going to be seeing over the coming years, a lot less robins, hopefully. And in, in addition, there's only about 1% of native prairies that still exist in the uh, United States. And so these prairies are a very finite, very limited resource. And so planting these prairies here is, has broad ecological ramifications for the region. As far as uh, educational, um, these prairies provide a living laboratory for students to do research. In this last fall, I did research with Dr. Ryan Sensenig in looking at what really is out there for these prairies. And the, while we do have lots of prairies in Mary Lee, these prairies are close and convenient, and we don't have to make that 40-minute uh, that drive down there, which was a really big help. And uh, along with being close and convenient, these, these prairies for the educational um, field can go to all students. Um, many of you who are not environmental science majors will have very limited experiences at Mary Lee, and so we have the prairies right here for us all to experience and to learn about through our daily lives. So we got some black-eyed Susan, purple coneflower, uh, aster, and coreopsis. These are example, many examples of the prairie plants that are, you're going to see a lot of in this coming fall. Now I'm going to talk about biodiesel production. Now here is a, here is a drawing of the biodiesel plant. We start from the right and go to the left and essentially. And what we're doing is we're converting waste vegetable oil from AVI Fresh and converting that into biodiesel. And that biodiesel will be used to power the, to supplement the diesel that we're using to power the generator. The generator is used to produce electricity when there's a power outage, for example, or during peak power use. And this biodiesel plant was proposed and built by four students in spring of 08. The, they donated um, many, many hours of their, of their senior year into building this. It was around $8,000 for the equipment. So it was a very big undertaking to get this thing off the ground. Now, as far as how much we produce, one batch, we produce around 75 gallons of biodiesel. We do about two to three batches a year, depending on how much biodiesel or how much vegetable oil we, we get. And so in total, over the last four years, we have produced 700 gallons of biodiesel that has um, gone to 
uh, gone to the generator. As far as cost, right now diesel fuel is about $4 a gallon, whereas in the most recent numbering of, of the cost, it costs around 3 to $4 a gallon uh, for biodiesel. So we're about breaking even now, which is really great. Um, as far as who can work there, um, it requires you to take two semesters of organic chemistry. And we have three workers right now. Um, there's me, Katie Whittup, and the newest member is James P. Miller. In addition, I'd like to make a big shout out to uh, AVI Fresh for giving us the biodiesel. They do a really great job of, they bring the biodiesel from the Fraker or, uh, or West Long Dining Hall. And they bring it, all right, yeah. They, they bring it over to us and sometimes they even pour it in for us and it's really great service that they're just donating it to us. They could possibly just dump it in the back of the, in the tank in the back and sell it for a nominal fee. So really want to thank ABI Fresh for all the good, uh, all the good donating of waste vegetable oil so we can make biodiesel. Thank you. Eberly. And I'm Natasha Weisenbeck. And we are here representing EcoPACS, um, which is essentially, if you don't know, just an organization on campus um, that gets together. A, it's a group of people. This year we've been a steering committee um, specifically to plan events and seeking to find peace with our environment, um, finding ways on campus to raise ecological consciousness. Um, and then also finding ways to network within our community as well. So on campus this year, we've hosted a variety of different events, um, some of them being a day of prayer, also trying to highlight Arbor Day and Earth Hour as well. And then other ways that we've networked with our community. One thing, we also um, hung out at Wreath Interpretive Center on Arbor Day and helped hoist kids into trees, which is something we've done for a couple years um, as they often plan a community event to, for Arbor Day. And then this year, um, Goshen College is working with the Elkhart River Restoration Association. Um, and so last Saturday, two Saturdays ago, um, they gathered together around the college cabin and gathered brush piles together that were then moved and installed actually into the Elkhart River right next to the college cabin to encourage aquatic um, fish life and fish habitation, more so in the river. And so that was something fun that EcoPax was able also to send people to to help with that community event. And like Hannah has been saying, the word network has been big for us this year. Um, especially during first semester, there weren't very big things that were manifesting physically, but networking with other people has been kind of a primary goal. Um, we've become part of something called Renewal, which is a network of Christian colleges that are focusing on cure creation. And um, they do something every year called the Green Awakenings Report, and on the inside they have this thing called the Matrix, and it has about 20 different points of sustainability, and actually out of the 20, Goshen College doesn't have three of them. So we're like within the top three people who are actually doing sustainable things. So. 
If you think we're not doing anything, we actually are doing a few. So if someone wants to look at this, I guess I'll be out somewhere maybe. But um, it's online as well. You can find it at, um, I think it's caringforcreation.net is Renewal's network. And they have different things like toolkits for other colleges. And other colleges that are also in this are Taylor, um, Taylor Purdue is actually in it this year, which is not a Christian college, but um, one of our student leaders are there. Also Wheaton and several other colleges within the Indiana and even a few in Minnesota area come together and talk about what they're doing with composting, what they're doing with campus gardens, what they're doing with different things on campus and trying to figure out how to get administration and students to collaborate together to do sort, those kinds of things. Um, another way that we've been networking is we've actually been talking to more people about our, about our composting program, in fact, and really just our design and setup, which is fairly unique because it is a, for a smaller unit because Goshen College isn't that large and a lot of other composting things have to do with theaters or really big things that we just can't afford. And our composting boxes are fairly cheap to maintain and process. And one group that came to us were, was Culver Military Academy, which is a private high school and boarding school in Indiana. Um, they're basically a high school. It was a high schoolers initiative. I think she was a senior or a junior? Senior. She was a senior, and so she had to get together different um, members of the faculty, different members of the, of the student body. And she was trying to find a way that she could do this for a senior project to get the academy to um, find a way to compost. And so we got to have a conversation, us, Glenn, um, Bob Rombach and one or two other people from Ephesus Plant and whatnot, and Ecopax as well, to talk to them about the difficulties we've been going through, the benefits, and how it might fit them, or what other ways could fit their needs. We've even been approached by another college, which is St. Joseph's College in Indiana, which is about a thousand, a thousand student population, and is a Catholic school. But as I've been talking about composting, yeah. So this is our second full year of composting this year, which is pretty exciting that it's continuing to be up and running. Um, we have 10 to 14 volunteers, so you might see them in the evenings when we cover the compost and we take the compost outside where composting happens, out behind West Lawn Dining Hall. Um, and so, and you might have noticed our signs have changed in this past semester where we have changed our system instead of needing food to be separated. Um, we're now able to compost all food waste as well as napkins. And so that's been a switch for us. Napkins are compostable, if you didn't know. Um, and we can compost them because they just add balk to the food that we're already composting and helps decrease the amount of mulch that we need for composting as well. Um, so we have our boxes that we compost in and we put mulch in them and we put food in them from the cafeteria before it goes out for us to eat and then the food waste that we as students put in the trash receptacles. And then after those boxes start composting, we empty them and then they can be used um, for different mulching projects on campus or for the campus garden, sorry, not the campus garden, um, for the Westland Dining Hall garden. Um, yeah. And of course, there's always an option for you guys not to compost, but we really encourage you to do that, to go ahead and scrape your plate into the, one of the trash receptacles that is open for composting. And if they're not open in the morning, feel free to open it up, because usually that just means someone hasn't gotten to it yet. Um, this summer, I'll actually be staying on as an intern with um, Lou Naylor, helping with, the com with composting over the summer. I'll be collecting the history of how, it, how people have interacted with it, Sue, about Wednesday, keep your eyes out for a little box and some paper by the composting, because if you have 
any issues or any ideas or just your experiences in general, I would love to hear about it. But um, so that's one part of something I'll be doing, but I'll also be figuring out how the compost is decomposing in more of a scientific way and looking at how glycerol, which is actually from a biodiesel byproduct, because we put that in there, seeing how that affects it. But um, the main reason why we're getting all this information together is for something that <coughs> David Zweer and Hannah actually got to be a part of in the past. Um, so Natasha will be applying to present at the United States Composting Council, um, which David Zweer and I went to two winters ago, um, where we talked about what our composting system looks like and how that we are composting on a campus that is small, mostly highlighting things that we talked to campuses about this year, about the simplicity in our model um, and providing for more networking opportunities. And I think David and I were also highlighted at the conference as just being two of the youngest people, or definitely the two youngest people there presenting. And so it would be cool to see Natasha also be able to do that. And so, as we've been saying a lot about networking, you guys are also a big part of this network and a big part about how we can get things done or how we can get information out to other people. So this year our meetings have been a little bit more secluded and not as open, but next year keep your eye out for communicator announcements about where they'll be, they should be bi-weekly or at least once a month. And we really encourage you to just, if you think you want to help out with something, just stop in by once in a while to see what's going on or sign up to the emailing list. Or if you have an idea, bring it to EcoPax, bring it to the Ecological Stewardship Committee because it's kind of like a network, like ecosystem really is, everything working together. So, thank you. Next speaker is Steve Schantz. Steve's job title is Systems Operation Technician. He's passionate about improving energy efficiency and reducing use of fossil fuel. He's going to show us how our campus energy use continues to go down, and he's going to tell us about, also about two particularly interesting projects, one which is already completed and one which is going to be undertaken soon. So, Steve? In the kitchen. Uh, is a big dishwasher. And uh, many of you have probably noticed in the winter out blowing over Main Street a huge plume of steam. And that is the exhaust from the dishwasher. Um, the final rinse stage uh, rinses the dishes with 160 degree water. There's a big exhaust fan that blows it out. Um, and it's all energy wasted and that always irked me. And so um, this past year we installed at the top there, a, um, basically like a, a car radiator. And what it does is the cold water that comes in to, to the dishwasher passes through these radiators and um, cools this exhaust air and, pick, and condenses a lot of moisture. And the cold water that comes in at 60 degrees goes out at 110. And that's almost half of the energy required for the rinse water. Um, and it also preheats the rest of the dishwasher too. It's really quite impressive and it's worked really well. Um, so that's one of the projects we did that's helping reduce energy consumption. Um, I don't have a picture for it, but many of you are aware of the big dig that's happening this summer under the tracks. Um, there will be another project happening at the same time um, where we are installing some heat pumps. Uh, these are very large heat pumps 
and their function is to take the, uh, how do you describe it? Think of an air conditioner. Um, it blows out cold air on one side into your room and it exhausts hot air outside. Um, this is basically like that, except that we recover the heat and use it to heat water. And <clears throat> we recover the cold side and use it for air conditioning. And believe it or not, in a lot of our buildings, we need heating and cooling at the same time. And so this is a very, very efficient way to, um, to uh, heat and cool. And we'll be using groundwater to remove excess heat or excess cold as required. And just last week, there were two large wells that went in between um, the library and the heating plant. I don't know if you ever, if you noticed that or not. That's the beginning of that project. There'll be a lot more messes before that's done. Um, finally, uh, just pointing out our continuing success in reducing natural gas consumption. Um, the red line is our uh, gross campus square footage, which has been increasing dramatically. Um, and our gas consumption is the blue line, which just keeps going down. Um, the big drop at the end here is because of the winter that wasn't. <laughs> Similarly, electrical consumption um, just keeps dropping also. Uh, we keep finding ways to improve our processes. Um, I will give a shout out to ITS. In the last year, they've done some major improvements in their server room that has uh, dramatically reduced the electrical consumption on that end. And so um, these are the things that get me up in the morning and make me want to go to work. As you can see, Steve more than earns his salary every year. Our last, last but not least, Isaac Yoderschrock and John Ross Bushert will introduce us to the Sun Shower Project. So uh, in case you were worried about uh, the sustainability moving us back to the dark ages, uh, John and I have been working on a project that actually is moving us forward uh, technologically. So uh, uh, we want to talk about the Sun Shower Project this morning, um, which is basically an idea that Glenn Gilbert had uh, three or four years ago and uh, is, a, is a way that we're using the sun's energy to heat shower water at the RFC. And uh, a number of students worked on the project uh, for two to three years and, and made some good progress as far as implementation, ways to make it work. Um, and then Andrew Glick, Micah Detweiler, um, Micah? Miller Eshelman. Micah Miller Eshelman, wrong name. And myself, <laughs> my apologies, Micah. <laughs> um, I worked on the project for a little while and uh, brought it to fruition, brought it to the administration, um, found the funding for the project, and uh, it's now working down in the southwest part of the RFC. Um, so since you guys have been hearing a lot of talking recently, I just want to show you some pictures of it and we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, so this is in the construction phase, um, where we're lowering a tank into the ground, and before we do that, we have to have our insulation for the tank. And um, John will talk about that in a little bit more, but uh, there's Glenn Gilbert inside of our hot water tank, um, which is where we store the, the water and we store the heat for the system, and he's cleaning it. Um, a funny little story about it, we bought it um, for $500 on eBay. So this 5,000 gallon tank that would probably cost like six or $7,000 brand new, we got for a bargain on eBay. <laughs> Here's the process of lowering the tank into the ground with a 
relatively large crane. That picture of the crane, some of you should uh, be aware that that's going to show up in a physics class next year. We're going to do some calculating of forces. Nice statics problem there, waiting to happen. And uh, here we are, uh, steadying the crane down into the, uh, the tank down into the ground. And there's a the finished product, insulated around the top to keep the heat in, and uh, before the panels have been installed. And uh, John will share a little bit about how everything works now. Yeah, we don't have any pictures of the final installation. Uh, I, I guess we'll just have to say, it's kind of like the internet, uh, the, these uh, solar collectors. It's a series of tubes. Uh, so. <laughs> I guess maybe some of you are too young to get that joke, but anyhow, uh, uh, it is a series of tubes, and they're, they're double tubes, uh, an outer glass tube and an inner one that's got a, an absorbing surface that gets hot, and uh, that inner one is connected to some copper bulbs that stick up into a manifold where water flows across and gets heated by them. The uh, reason we've got these tubes rather than uh, a different kind of uh, collector that would be flat plates is uh, they can have a vacuum in between the two tubes. The inner collector and the outer glass tube have a vacuum in between and that insulates it particularly well. So in extremely cold weather, they still work better. And since it does sometimes get cold around here, uh, we thought that was the better choice. Uh, what do we do? They're also more efficient on cloudy days, like okay. almost every day in Indiana. There we go. So here's the whole system. So it uh, looks maybe kind of complicated, but uh, heat from those tubes gets put into this enormous storage tank. Water is circulating back and forth from that large storage tank through the manifold that gets heated by those collectors and then back into that large storage tank so we've got something like 4,500 gallons of hot water sitting there, and there's some heat in it right now, even though this is not a particularly sunny day. Uh, we want to go out there and uh, open it up, and you can stick your hand in and feel very hot water, or at least warm water, on a day like this, because we've got stored heat. Then some more complicated stuff to transfer that heat into the pressurized system that is the, the showers that you experience. The large tank itself is not pressurized. That makes it much cheaper, which requires then a heat exchanger. And I think I'll not try to go into explaining all of that. Better to go out there and actually see the system. We want to take one of the tubes out so you can experience it. Uh, you hold it up in the cloudy weather and see if the bulbs even get a little bit warm on a cloudy day like this. Uh, open it up so you can see the inside of the tank and so on. So we would invite all of you to follow us out there, anybody who wants, and, and see the actual system. Uh, it's off that direction. We'll cross the tracks and anybody who wants to. And a few of you that want to, we'll even take on a little tour uh, inside the Rec Fitness Center and see some of the insides of it. So that's what we have for you next. Off, let's go. You got your stuff? <laughs>